Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for tuning in. Sorry it's arrived a bit late. I was waiting to see whether there was going to be a Brexit deal or no deal. And it's like waiting for Godot. It could have been weeks before you got this podcast. So the podcast is going ahead while we wait for Boris Johnson to descend on Brussels godlike to negotiate masterfully with various counterparts in the European Union. We'll come on to that in a minute. Before we do, thank you all those who have asked for labels for the book, The Prime Minister's Reflections on Leadership from Harold Wilson to Boris Johnson, out now in paperback. Many of you have. I've been kind of inundated. So if I've missed any, please email me again and I will do the label, the message and a signed copy, which you can then stick into the kind of book. It's the next best thing to signed copies at book festivals. It's the kind of book signing equivalent of Zoom. And it actually seems to be working well. And loads of you have asked for this. So please carry on doing this week. I think after that, it's going to get too close to Christmas. So if you're going to buy the book for friends, relatives or yourself for Christmas and you want a message, just email me with the message and I'll write it, sign it and you need the address as well. Some of you at first forgot to put the address, slight technical hitch and then off it'll go in time for Christmas. One other thing, Rock and Roll Politics is live at King's Place on December the 16th. It's like ancient history returning, we're back and it's brilliantly done at King's Place, social distancing, all COVID measures in place. But it does mean live interaction. It's got to be your festive outing if you can get to King's Place for that one. God, we're going to have a lot to reflect on that evening. Of course, in a kind of celebratory festive spirit, we'll know precisely what's happened with Brexit. When I say precisely, there will be endless questions that will be answered in years to come. But we'll also look back at the whole year. What a year, one that historians will be reflecting on in 200, 300 years' time. We have lived through epic history in 2020, so we'll reflect on that and with the audience live, dare to look ahead to 2021 and see what happens then. By the way, on our predictions in September, I asked the audience at King's Place and those watching the stream, the live stream, whether they thought there would be no deal or a deal on Brexit. 52% predicted no deal, 48% predicted a deal. So, Let's see. By the time you hear this, some of you might know the answer to that, whether that prediction was correct. If so, it breaks all records because our predictions are reliably wrong. Anyway, we will be looking ahead and back on December the 16th. And if you can't get to King's Place, there's a live stream. So it'll be going global around the world. And you can get tickets for the live event at King's Place or the live stream on the King's Place website now. So hope to see some of you there and all of you on the live stream. We will have a hell of a lot to catch up on by December the 16th. More of your questions coming up, brilliant questions as ever. And there have been so many, I won't be able to address all of them today, but over time we will. 
and keep them coming. I'll give the email address at the end as usual. In fact, I'll do it. I'll do it now because I know how active you all are while listening to this podcast that perhaps you haven't started your activities yet. So you can write it down. Steve Rick 14 at iCloud.com. That's Steve Rick 14 at iCloud.com. Questions and points to come shortly. But beforehand, I thought I would reflect on the astonishing self-confidence of Tory prime ministers, especially those from Eton, in comparison with Labour prime ministers. It is quite astonishing that Johnson has the chutzpah now to say, I'm off to Brussels, blah, 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 you know, here am I, me, me, me. The level of self-absorption If you think of it from the point of view of Britain's puny little Brexit trade negotiator, David Frost, now Lord Frost, and what pride he must take in that title, he has been following instructions from Number 10 all the way through this process. And in following those instructions, he has remained unyielding, perversely, on this issue of sovereignty. It's wholly unrealistic, purist view of sovereignty. If applied across the world, it would turn the UK into sort of North Korea. In any trade deal, there's a pooling of sovereignty. There are agreements made and agreements that then have to be policed. If there's a US trade deal, and Frost was around. He won't be because he's now grandly going off to be the National Security Advisor as Cummings' favourite person. He was going to be offered everything. Chancellor, Governor of the Bank of England, all run by Frosty, as they call him. Thank goodness he's not going to be involved in any more trade deals, but it's not his fault. He's been carrying out instructions, although he does believe in it. Of course, there's a pooling of sovereignty, an agreement about who polices the trade deal between two different sides. But none of this is acceptable to Frosty via Johnson and before Johnson Cummings, who thought by exerting a machismo, they could have their cake and eat it. And apparently Johnson's been going round the last few days saying they just don't get it. They just don't get it. And he means by that the Europeans don't get Johnson's belief that the referendum means Britain must assert a kind of pure sense of independence that's wholly unrealistic. In other words, that the Europeans must give Britain everything it wants, but Britain then can decide what it wants to do without any consequences for the other half of this potential trade deal. It's a fantasy, and it always has been. It's not at all clear whether Johnson knew it to be a fantasy and just pretended Britain could have its cake and eat it, or whether he believed in the fantasy himself. He certainly, with that Etonian education, believes in British exceptionalism. We saw that with COVID, where in early February up until early March, he seemed to think Britain alone could escape from the consequences of a global pandemic. And similarly, in this trade deal, 
he seems to think the European Union will give up on the purity of the single market, which it too is attached to, because of British exceptionalism. And now he will fly into Brussels or take the train into Brussels. And, well, I won't reflect on that because some of you will be listening after that particular drama has been played out. But it is this self-confidence. I'll come on to Johnson in a minute. But consider Cameron for a second, if you can bear it. Sorry if those of you, you know, running or doing press-ups are put off by this thought, but Cameron in 2010 became Prime Minister with no overall majority. His pitch to the country had not secured a win that gave him the right to fully implement that programme of 2010 a programme that was presented as a sort of modern form of conservatism, but actually was rooted in Thatcherism in all kinds of different ways. The economic programme, real-term spending cuts as a response to the global financial crash, which was not triggered by public spending in the UK or anywhere else, actually. And in terms of public service reform, their programme out thatchered Thatcher. And it didn't quite strike a chord with the electorate. You would have thought it could have done after that long period of Labour rule and the financial crash happening under Brown's watch and Brown having been Chancellor for such a long time. But in spite of those huge political advantages, Cameron didn't get an overall majority. Did it dent his self-confidence? Not for a single second. He formed that coalition with the gullible Nick Clegg, who Cameron played brilliantly from his perspective, and went ahead with a programme of mind-boggling radicalism. There's a book to be done on the coalition, because you would have expected a kind of tame expediency in terms of ideological, crusading, messianic commitment. But we got ideological, crusading, messianic commitment. They pursued the economic policy, which has been interestingly now disowned or criticised by Barack Obama in his memoir of real-terms spending cuts. This was an extraordinarily radical right response to the crisis in hand. No majority, Cameron didn't stop for a second and agonise about the wisdom of this. They went ahead. And the public service reforms to the NHS, to education, on they went. Gove and Cummings at the Department of Education, at the NHS, Andrew Lansley pioneered his radical reforms. They were paused briefly. Minor changes were made so the Lib Dems could then back it. And on they went. And it is partly Eton, which I think gives people like Cameron and Johnson this sense that they have a right to rule and when they get there, do so with so much less doubt and self-doubt compared with Labour Prime Ministers. When I think about the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, a constitutional revolution that Johnson is undoing because it doesn't necessarily help his cause and it was only introduced to help Cameron's cause. 
Clegg wanted it for more purist constitutional reasons, but again was naive about its implementation and consequences. So that's one example. And then you compare that with the New Labour era, where incidentally they were regularly condemned as being arrogant and control freaks and too radical for their own good, when the precise opposite was the case. So Cameron, no majority, pursues a Thatcherite revolution with unyielding determination. And Blair wins a majority of mind-boggling proportions in 1997, did so again in 2001. And all the time, this also is the case with Brown, every policy, however minor, how will it go down in the newspapers? How will the BBC report it? What about those voters who normally voted Tory, but voted Labour in 97 because they thought we were different? Can we do this? Can we do that? What's X doing in the Department of Education? Should he or she be doing something different? On it went, the doubts, the questions, the sense that they were imposters disturbing the natural order of things. And even Iraq, which is portrayed as Blair becoming messianic in his self-belief, was a product of the same timidity, a fear of challenging anything that a US president does because Labour lost elections in the 80s through their opposition partly to or being perceived as being anti-American and soft on defence. So everywhere there is a sort of calculated, fearful caution. You can see it in Keir Starmer's agonies now, if he is agonising about it, over whether or not to back a deal if Johnson gets one, even though we know and he knows that it's a bad deal. Another example of this timidity that you get from Labour that you don't from these self-confident Etonian Tory prime ministers. And Johnson, the risks he has taken over pursuing a hard Brexit, a hard Brexit incidentally where in the 2016 referendum there was no formalised endorsement of in any shape or form. There was a vote for Brexit but no Brexit was defined then. So on he has pursued, uh, knowing that the consequences, because you're not stupid, he must have thought through some of the consequences of what he's been doing. But nothing stops him. There is a self-confidence. I mean, it, it manifested itself more vividly, I suppose, when he didn't have a majority as prime minister. When a Labour Prime Minister has no majority, they spent all their time trying to woo everybody. Johnson expelled Clark, Letwin, Hammond. He suspended the whip from these terrible, frightening revolutionary figures. With a confidence that suggested he had a majority of 500 in the House of Commons when he was a minority Prime Minister. I think it's partly the Etonian education. It is partly a sense that, in England anyway, people tend to vote Conservative. It is still seen as the party that rules England, with profound consequences. It fuels independence in Scotland and many other things. And so 
when Labour are in power, as I say, they feel they're disturbing the natural order of things. It's partly to do with the fact that the Labour Party is a deeply flawed vehicle in terms of winning elections. It remains disgraceful and a cause for much-needed serious introspection in all parts of the Labour Party that they have failed so catastrophically to win elections in the last four elections against weak governing parties and prime ministers. Cameron is now widely seen as being shallow. I think he almost has clocked it himself and has therefore kind of disappeared. We know about Theresa May's weaknesses and we for sure know about Johnson's weaknesses, yet he won a majority of 80. So that's another factor, I think, in the self-confidence. But it allows them to be far more daring with many dire consequences some of the time than Labour Prime Ministers. And one of the things which is interesting about even Corbyn, who did retain strong views, many of which he refused to dilute in any way, but he too was far more pragmatic than caricature allows. Remember, most assume, I'm not quite sure whether they're right, that he remained a supporter of Brexit, of Britain leaving the European Union. Well, he might have campaigned half-heartedly, but it was an act of pragmatism to campaign for precisely the opposite of what you believe, if he really did still believe in Brexit. I think he was much more torn than that, but you know what I mean. Here was another Labour leader, famous for convictions, albeit not fully thought through in some cases, being expedient. He was a passionate supporter of unilateralism, Corbyn. He went into both elections advocating multilateralism because he couldn't win that argument. He's well known as a Republican. He entered both elections, pledged not to implement any Republican moves if he became Prime Minister. Even he was forced to be expedient because he didn't dare to be otherwise. But Johnson, Cameron, combination of Eton, sense that Tories rule in England, a weak opposition gives them self-confidence that you do wonder if there is ever a non-Tory Prime Minister elected again, whether they would dare to assert themselves in the way that this lot have done. Well, two of them may actually, ironically, had a much more interesting domestic agenda, thanks to Nick Timothy, but she never got to implement it. Nick Timothy being sacked unfairly after the election of 2017, the one that's largely been airbrushed out of history because it wasn't what the pundits expected to happen, so they've just stopped talking about it. Anyway, we will await the outcome of the Brexit talks, and no doubt they will feature very heavily in next week's podcast. If you're listening after you know that outcome, I hope you'll be reflecting a bit on this issue of confidence in politics and in leadership and why it is Labour leaders lack it. and They pretend to have it, but they haven't, and these Tories do. Oh, I was going to say another factor, of course, is even now, when the media is so fractured, it does help if you have most newspapers on your side. And, of course, New Labour worked obsessively to get the newspapers 
normally Tory to back them. But in doing so, that added to their sense of paralysis at times in power. But anyway, what chutzpah from Johnson as he goes to save the UK yet again. And let's have a look at some questions because there have been some great questions. Actually, Harry Anderson's asked one which relates to what I was saying there about Starmer and how he will vote if there is a deal. Harry says, Hi Steve, love the podcast. What do you make of Labour getting a kicking for abstaining on the tears vote? Yeah, that was an interesting example, which I think has fueled Starmer's instincts in terms of not abstaining but voting for a deal, in that his abstention on the legislation to establish the three tiers post the lockdown was absolutely the right call. If he had voted against, the tier propositions would have been defeated and England would be without any constraints at all and all hell would have broken loose. But he didn't want to support them because he was critical of elements of it. So it was a very active move abstaining in that context. And, you know, he tried to explain it, but I don't think he did it very well. He saved the measures so measures were in place but he had the space to be critical because he didn't vote for them and he needs to think about that with the uh, brexit vote as well if there is one he was unfairly criticized but in a way it's for the leadership to make the argument clearly enough and accessibly enough to make sure that criticism is blocked off Andrea, oh, she usually listens while doing my slightly under 5k half hour run, so it fits perfectly. Yeah, what's how much? We, we, you might have to run a bit further today, Andrea, because well, so much is going on. But Andrea asks about the quality of politicians in Britain, or uh, certainly the English ones, the Westminster-based ones compared with the Irish or other European counterparts. She points out that when they're interviewed, people like some of the Irish politicians who quite often appear on the Mars show, or some from France or Germany, they appear to be more substantial than some of the British ones. Why is this? Is it the sort of tabloid culture in Britain? And she names some of those who don't match some of the other ones from Europe and elsewhere, even America, actually. Uh, Rob, Nadine Doris, Patel, Ledsom, Jenrick, Gavin Williamson. You wouldn't describe them as epic figures. And it is interesting. I mean, in fairness, it's much easier for politicians from other countries to do interviews in Britain. They're not facing their own electorate. And their own electorate will have their own criticisms of them. The British voter will only see them as almost like kind of distant figures, commentators, rather than those who rule over them. So there's a much greater pressure from British politicians to perform in interviews compared with those from abroad. But it is true that, and this is not, I think, nostalgic kind of fantasy, that the quality of politician has really declined in recent years. And that is a kind of huge issue. Now, why would take a whole podcast? Because it is complicated, but I think it is partly the emphasis on localism these days, which means that the kind of people who are elected as candidates tend to be on the basis of their 
contribution to local communities rather than anything else. But there are many other factors. The current cabinet, for example, it was, I think, an active choice of Johnson not to select formidable figures. He is frightened by, I was talking about his self-confidence earlier, he's very insecure as well. So he consciously chose a weak, unthreatening cabinet, most of whom backed Brexit. Another issue in this current drama. There's no one around him making warnings about some of the things he is doing in relation to Brexit. Anyway, thank you for that, Andrea. Uh, Keep going. It's 26 minutes in. Uh, You should be nearly finished. Tom Butnell asks, Steve, what's the point of the government publishing a draft bill to repeal the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, when in reality the Act didn't work? It didn't stop us having three general elections in the last five years. Yeah, that's a good point. The legislation was a complete mess, yet it has had a kind of psychological impact, I think, Tom, in the sense that nowadays you don't get the same speculation about a possible early election because people say, ah, the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. And it does need sometimes the backing of the opposition to get the legislation through to call an election. So with great gullibility, if that's a word, the opposition parties allowed Johnson to have his December election last year. They could have stopped it, but they didn't. And clearly Johnson wants to repeal the Act because he wants to have the freedom to call an election at any time without the worry of a vote. You know, difficult people, he can just do it. So that's why he's uh, doing it. And it shows that he is utterly determined to stay on and win an election. He'll only call it when he's miles ahead in the polls, if, if he's miles ahead in the polls. Anyway, thank you for that. Colin Startup has asked about, oh, Rory Stewart. There's an interesting name. Colin says, I'm soft left, but I find Rory's thoughtfulness, independence and seriousness refreshing. Do you think that the one nation moderate wing of the Tory party will ever be a serious force again? Or has the Tory party been captured by those further on the right? It's quite complicated, this definition of the Tory party at the moment, because... Johnson, in theory anyway, is well to the left of Cameron and Osborne. Europe is the great problem and issue with the modern Tory party. But Theresa May first, and now Johnson, in language, not in policies, are way to the left of Cameron and Osborne. They believe in an active state. Leveling up implies a level of state intervention and government activity that the Thatcherite era would not have permitted. I mean, Johnson doesn't know what he believes. He believes that and Thatcherism and everything else. But in theory, at least, there has been a shift economically to the left. But Europe, as defined by Johnson, is the product of a kind of outdated English nationalism, Brexit exceptionalism, which I suppose is kind of rooted on the right, but could be anywhere. If you want a good analysis of Johnson, read Rory Stewart's review of Tom Bower's book on Johnson in the TLS. It's online free, I think. It is scathing and brilliantly written. The likes of Stewart are very interesting. He made a big mistake in leaving the parliamentary party. You only have a base if you're in parliament as an MP. And he's completely messed it up. I think he, he doesn't understand 
political strategy, but he's very interesting as a political character. Habib writes from Glasgow. Uh, This is quite interesting. I'm getting quite a few emails about this. It's always struck me as slightly odd that the rather catchy theme to your rock and roll politics podcast isn't a homage to 50s rock and roll music, but 60s Californian surfer music. I'm no psychoanalyst, but is it possible you or the composer were subconsciously channeling a Tarantino vibe in line with the scenes of strong violence and language that have been par for the course in politics since 2016? Well, there we go. That covers so many different themes. Actually, a lot of people said, oh, yeah, where where do you get that music from? It's really good. Who composed it? And the truth is, I can't remember. Uh, you have to choose certain music or else you pay fortunes in, in copyright all the time. And so the guy who set up the podcast for me, a brilliant guy from the BBC, Gareth, chose this music. I've no idea where it's from, but people do like it and have asked more about it. I wish I knew more, uh, but I don't. But you're right, it has a certain uh, kind of psychedelic quality, which maybe helps everyone get going as they listen to this uh, podcast. Uh, Robin Murray uh, writes, I know Robin from uh, Twitter. Oh, he usually listens when walking with his Labrador Dylan through orchards in West Kent for 40 minutes. It's not all Brexit lorry parks yet, he writes. Well, yeah, you just wait till January the 1st, Robin, you'll be walking your dog Dylan through lorry parks and God knows what else. Oh, yeah, Robin's wondering about Labour's response to a poor deal. If Labour voted for the deal, it could be couched in terms during the debate that it voted for it in order to avoid any risk of no deal, because a bad deal is better than a no deal, etc. Is that a problem? I think it is a problem, because as he raises actually later on in the email, this is what will happen, the Today programme. When the bad deal has many dire consequences and people turn against it Keir Starmer will be on the Today programme saying X has happened Y has happened under Johnson's watch and they'll just say but you voted for the deal that brought this about and I think it closes off any space for serious scrutiny from Starmer and serious scrutiny is what he's best at he doesn't do emotion he doesn't yet do wit although he can be funny I interviewed him. It's online somewhere at the Politics Festival I organised with Ian Birrell, the journalist, and he was very funny and relaxed. It was a very good format for him, and he needs more of that. But at the moment, he's got scrutiny, and he's the only one who scrutinises Johnson. His cabinet don't. He doesn't do interviews. So anyway, I think it would be a mistake to back it, but I know others disagree with that. And I suppose if you juxtapose it and insist it's only because of no deal as the other option and condemn five years of political energy of mind-boggling proportions to end with a juxtaposition of a bad deal or no deal, maybe you can clear the ground. But he's got to clear the ground. A question from Helen Thornton. Oh, Helen, watch The Last King's Place. I hope you'll be at the next one in one form or another. She wonders why there is so much interest in the US, including the BBC, who, whenever there's a big story like the election, send about 15,000 people. This kind of focus on the US. And she also wonders 
why the very hardline Brexiteers have such a visceral reaction to Europe, Steve Baker, Mark Francois and John Redwood. Where does it come from? Where does it originate from? Thatcher, Enoch Powell, both good questions. The I've always wondered that. It's very interesting. Whenever anything happens in the US, it's as if it happened here. And I think there is a sort of psychological make up to parts of the media here, parts of the political class, that uh, Britain really is another US state. And there is this belief here, nowhere near as deeply embedded in the US, that there is a special relationship. And therefore, anything that happens in the US merits intensive coverage. Whereas, as Helen points out, that's not the case when things happen in Europe. It's true, you know, fascinating elections in Italy, Macron's got his election coming up fairly soon, and there will be less intense focus compared with the US. I mean, the US is an economic superpower, but Europe is on our border. In terms of the irrational Euroscepticism, I mean, there is a wholly rational case for Brexit about accountability and uh, Westminster should be the place because that's where we elect MPs. You can argue it. But you're right. I mean, some people who are apoplectic about the prospects of any compromise in an EU trade deal, you know, Baker, Redwood and co, would be much less apoplectic about a compromise for a US trade deal. And I think the Euroscepticism is partly a product of this kind of mindset of British exceptionalism. It's a product of so many things, Churchill, the war, their own kind of view of Britain. Uh, it is about, to some extent, the Thatcher era and the attempts then by the European Union for greater integration, for social reform. But some of it is, is, is really odd and it probably needs a psychiatrist to kind of work it all through. Um, but thank you very much for those uh, brilliant questions. Let's just do one more. Oh, yeah, I like this. This is from Roberta Mansell. Because every one of you, or most of you, kindly say what you are doing, you know, walking your dog, the 5K, and all the other things. Roberta just writes, Dear Steve, call me an old biddy, but why can't anyone just sit down and listen? Thank you, Roberta. That sounds so much more relaxing. But of course, you know, you can burn calories while listening as well, or whatever. But um, I know what you mean. Sometimes the joy of just sitting down and listening to a podcast or music at the moment with a glass of wine, when all that's going on is going on is just a lovely prospect. Anyway, thank you all for your brilliant questions. There are lots, and one way or another, I'm going to get through them all, and maybe there'll be a kind of just question session over Christmas and the new year. But thank you for listening. What a few days coming up. What a few days have happened, if you're listening, post that EU summit. Anyway, we will make sense of it all at King's Place on December the 16th. I do hope you can join me for that. And remember, yeah, the tickets are on the King's Place website. And remember, questions, points, or if you're going to buy the book, Prime Ministers from Wilson to Johnson, do email me and ask for a message to be written and signed on a label, and I'll post those back to you. It's steverick14 at icloud.com. Much more drama to come. Thanks for listening.